you have your Bible, I invite you, if you would, to open it up, turn it on. Join me in the Old Testament uh, in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you don't want to have one of your very own, there should be some under the chairs in front of you. You're welcome to pick that up uh, and use that this morning and also keep it as our gift to you. If you don't have one or you know someone who needs one, um, we are, you are glad for that. Exodus is the second book of the entire Bible, and we're going to be in chapter 20 as we start a new series here at the beginning of a new year. As you've been driving around over the last several years, maybe you have come up behind a work van or you've come up behind a semi-truck or uh, even just a vehicle and you see that bumper sticker on the, the car and asks the question, how's my driving? And it gives a phone number. I've never actually, though I've wanted to at many different times, picked up the phone and actually called that phone number, but I can tell you for sure one of the things that I am grateful for is the fact that I don't have one of those on the back of my car. Amen. Friday, we took the boys to the zoo, and uh, we had had the flu over our Christmas break, and it was really the first day that we, and the only day that we were able to get out, and we had taken the boys down to Nashville to the zoo for the day, and Emerson had taken some of his Christmas money, and he had spent it on a Lego set. That Lego set showed up on Thursday, but he spent the night with his grandparents that night, and so he hadn't gotten it. And so he was anxious all day long to get home from the zoo so that he could put together his Lego set. And so we're on our way home, and I told Emerson, I'll have you home by 2.30, buddy. Well, then we made a pit stop uh, to pick up some french fries and got stuck in a little bit of a line and things are getting a little antsy and he's in the back and uh, he is not happy and, uh, and so they start coming up with all kinds of ways that I'm going to be punished if I don't get him home uh, by 2.30. And so, of course, uh, if I break my promise, so of course I'm doing everything then that I can to get home by 2.30. The problem with that is I kept ending up behind people who just did not want to to drive at the speed that I wanted to drive or in the manner that I wanted to drive in. And I know full well that I'm that person that when I'm fine and everything's going the way that it's supposed to be, I am really quick to judge and even uh, call out for a police officer to be right around the corner when there's somebody who's tailgating me or when there's somebody who's going 15 miles over the speed limit or everything else. But as soon as I'm under the gun... I immediately begin to have this utilitarian relationship with the laws of our land that says you're no longer serving my purposes, so I don't care, right? And the truth of the matter is that's our relationship most often with rules, regulation, with the law in general, isn't it? That you and I have this love-hate relationship with the rules, that when they benefit us, that we are grateful for them and we adhere to them and we're even quick to enforce them and ram them down the throat of other people. But as soon as they stand in opposition to the things that we desire, then we despise those exact same rules and those laws and we're quick to just throw them out and break them at will. Paul pointed that out in the book that we just came from, the book of Galatians. We spent the end of last year looking through that letter to the Galatians, and at the end, Paul condemned his opponents when he said, even the circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. If you remember from the book of Galatians, Paul's opponents, the opponents of the gospel itself, used the law for their own gain. They used it to promote themselves, enforcing, in it, enforcing it when it was to their fleshly advantage and breaking it when it was not. 
truth of the matter is, that's not just the struggle of the opponents of the gospel. That's the truth of the matter that each and every one of us struggle with every single day. In our own hearts, and our own lives, as we have this ongoing struggle with sin and the flesh in our lives, we live with this broken relationship with the law, this misunderstanding of God's rules and his regulations. And like the Galatian Christians, we have a tendency to fall off of this narrow path that Jesus has laid for us in one of two directions, either legalism on the one hand, in which we depend upon the law to do what the law was never intended to do, which is obtain righteousness for ourselves. Or, on the other hand, we tend towards lawlessness in which we just throw the law out altogether. We say, I've been saved by grace in Jesus Christ, so I don't have to follow the law anymore. The law doesn't apply to me anymore. But in our study of Galatians, Paul gave us a bigger picture of the law as he shared with us the purpose of the law. And he said it was threefold. One, the law reveals... Our sinfulness, it exposes just how deep our depravity actually goes. As we come to study and understand the law, it exposes just how broken we actually are. And in revealing our brokenness, the second thing that the law does is it traps us in that brokenness because it it does not give us a mechanism to deal with our brokenness. The law is not meant to save us. The law is not meant to be a set of rules and regulations that if I keep it, I climb the ladder of holiness and somehow obligate God to give me everlasting life. The law was not meant to be that mechanism of our salvation. It was meant to instead expose that we can't get ourselves out of our brokenness and then lead us to the one who does rescue and redeem us from our sin. Nevertheless, the law is not something that's negative, something to just be cast aside and be done with now that we live under the covenant of grace. And instead, the gospel, when it's rightly understood, restores not only our relationship with God, but it restores our relationship to his law. It corrects it. It makes it right. And so after coming out of that study of Galatians, the question that, uh, was po- that was raging in the back of my mind and there in my heart was, okay, if this is the purpose of the law and the law is not what saves us, but instead it exposes our sin and it leads us to Christ, what then should a Christian's relationship with the law of God be? What do we do with all of the Old Testament? Do we just throw it out? How do we, as those transformed by the gospel, relate to the law of God? And answering that big question is the purpose of the next several weeks and months as we are going to examine together the Ten Commandments, which was the backbone of Israel's relationship with the Lord. And I hope that what we will each and every one learn is that the law is a mechanism for glorifying the Lord. We glorify the Lord of love by living out his law in love and in a relationship with him. And being in a right relationship with him, we can live in a right relationship with his law and empowered by the presence of his spirit in living out his law, we bring him glory and honor as we display his character to the world. So this morning we're going to do a big overview of the Ten Commandments 
Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, would you look with me as we read these verses together? Moses writes, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word, for your grace, for the relationship that you have created for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you for another year. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that your hand of blessing would go before us, that your hand of grace would pave a way for, you, for us to glorify you in this year, that you would continue to give us opportunities that we might display the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might proclaim it with boldness and with courage. May we be a people, Heavenly Father, who wait first and foremost for you. May we not be so insistent upon our agenda that, Heavenly Father, we miss yours. But instead, let us not see that waiting, or let us see that waiting is not in opposition to courage, to bravery, as we saw earlier in the passage of Scripture that was read. I pray, Heavenly Father, instead, you would lead us in lives that bring you glory as we display your character in the way that we relate to you through your law and live out love for you and for one another. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. Here in the book of Exodus, as we come to chapter 20, we have to understand where the people of Israel have come from. If you remember back in Genesis, just a quick preview to bring us up to speed. Back in Genesis, God made, entered into a covenant relationship with a man named Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham that Abraham would have children, that would be without number. He would have, so he would have uh, a, uh, generations. He would have a place that God had given him a promised land. 
and that he would have a prominence in the world, namely that through Abraham and Abraham's offspring, all of the people of the earth would be blessed. Abraham had his own tests of faith because Abraham had no children. So how was he going to be the father of many children? And so God fulfilled his promises, and Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, but Jacob had 12 sons who became the children of Israel. If you remember, at the end of the book of Genesis, one of those sons, Joseph, was sold by his brothers into slavery into Egypt, where God used him in a, in a wonderfully amazing way to prepare a way for the, his brothers and his family to be saved from a famine. And so by the end of the book of Genesis, we find the children of Israel have moved to Egypt. The book of Exodus begins with some ominous words. That the Pharaoh who knew Joseph had passed, had died, and that the new king rose over Egypt, verse 8 of chapter 1, who did not know Joseph. And this king was intimidated, and this king was threatened by the presence of these people, and so he did what a king in power who feels threatened does. He misused and abused his power, and he enslaved those children, the people of Israel. And it was a harsh slavery until the people cried out, and God raised up for them a deliverer, Moses. Moses came uh, as sent by God to Pharaoh and declared the command of God that Pharaoh would release the children of Israel. Pharaoh refused, and so God waged war on Egypt and their gods. He did so through ten plagues. Every single one of those plagues corresponds to one of the gods in Egypt's pantheon of gods. Until the final plague came, which was an attack on Pharaoh, who was a representative of the sun god himself, and Pharaoh's oldest son died, the children of God were rescued and redeemed because they obeyed the Lord's command, namely that they take an innocent lamb, kill that lamb in the place of their oldest child, take the blood of that lamb and spread it over the doorposts of their home, and the angel of death would pass over their homes in judgment because of their obedience and their trust in their faith in the Lord. God then drew his people out of Egypt. In doing so, plundered Egypt because everybody went door to door and asked all of their neighbors, hey, do you have some jewelry? Do you have some money? Give me your precious things. And Egypt, the Egyptians were so ready for the Israelites to be gone, they gave it to them and they went out into the wilderness. God brought them to the Red Sea where they were trapped the Egyptian army comes after them. God rescues them by parting the sea, brings them to the other side into the desert, and he brings them to this place called Sinai. And God is, takes this mountain on Sinai, and in chapter 19 of Exodus, he draws some boundaries around this mountain because he is going to descend upon this mountain in all of his glory and holiness. And if anyone or any animal comes too near to God, they will die. And so he commands the people to prepare their hearts, to prepare their bodies for the arrival of his presence. And he descends upon the mountain in this cloud. And Moses comes up and has a conversation with him. And then God sends him back down to make sure one more time that the people know, do not come near this mountain because if you do, you'll die. And the glory of God is on this mountain and there is thunder and there is lightning and there is this display of his grandeur and his glory and this deep darkness that descends on the mountain as God himself comes down on Mount Sinai. And from 
that cloud and that deep darkness, a voice comes and speaks ten words. We know them as the Ten Commandments. But what's interesting when we come to this is the foundation of these Ten Commandments is not where we would tend to expect it to come. It's not actually based on this grand display of God's glory and His majesty and His might and His power. Instead, the foundation of the Ten Rules, Regulations, Laws, words that God gives is a relationship. And that's what we see in verses 1 and 2 is the the display of the relationship that God has with these people. God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This one who is God, verse 1, who is descended on this mountain in this grand display of glory, Elohim, the God who has destroyed the entire pantheon of Egyptians' gods, comes to be with his people. This relationship, first and foremost, we see is with God. It's not some cold contract between two parties. Instead, it has a personal component because the God who is doing all of this, who is displaying his might and his majesty in this, on this mountain, is the God who draws near enough to his people to speak to them. He doesn't bring this law to them through a mediator. Someone who dreams a dream, has a vision. Moses doesn't get the law on the mountain and come down. Instead, God is here with all of his people and God speaks. Which reveals something to us that all of the Bible declares to be true about God is that God is not some God who is far off and who is distant and who has just created things and wound up the watch and let it run. Instead, God is a God who speaks. And where and when he speaks, his word has the power to create. He creates the world through the spoken word. He recreates you and me in our hearts and in our lives through the proclamation, the speaking of the word that is the gospel. And this God comes now and speaks into existence this relationship with him. He doesn't give these commands, as I said, through an intermediary. He doesn't drop them down from the sky in some gold-plated contract that just descends out of heaven and levitates in front of them. Instead, he speaks directly to his people, and when he speaks, he declares this, I am the Lord, your God. It's a relationship between God and a people, and that people is made up of persons. This is God's relationship with each and every personal, each and every person, as the relationship is personal between them. But the relationship isn't just with God. The relationship is from God. He's the initiator of the relationship. Yes, the people had cried out and asked for salvation back when they were enslaved in Egypt, but it was God who was the one who started it all the way back with Abraham. It was God who comes to them, who rescues them. God is the one who chose these people. He's the one who's drawn near to them. And what we find here is that this is not a negotiation. Right? They don't get to work out the finer details in these things. Instead, God speaks and it is so. And he speaks out of a relationship that is a specific kind of a relationship. It is a relationship that is established by God through redemption. 
You see the foundation? God says, I am the Lord, your God, who did something for you. I brought you out of the house of Egypt, out from under a wicked king, out from under the bonds of slavery. I'm the God who rescued you. A lot of times when we come to the Ten Commandments, we see it merely as a list of do's and don'ts. A lot more don'ts than do's. When we come to the law of the Lord, we see it as a list of things to do or things to not do, things to stay away from, things to, to practice, to bring into our lives. But the truth of the matter is, when we look at the very foundation of the law of God, what we find is good news. The foundation of the law of God is the gospel itself. We don't find a religious system for getting right with God. Instead, we find the reality that God has already made them right by rescuing them and redeeming them, not by any work of their own, but some completely by his power and his grace and his might as he rescued these people and brought them and drew them to himself. And because of that work in their life, he now instructs them in the way that they are to glorify him. As we walk through this study, understanding, seeking to understand the law of God and the Ten Commandments of God, we must always start with the good news that God's law is built on love. That God's law is rooted out of his loving work in our lives. Such that we have been set free from our bondage to sin and slavery to Satan and rescued from the consequences of our sin. If we miss this, then our relationship with the law is going to end up skewed because we're going to come to it with this expectation that it is here somehow to dictate and direct my life, or even worse, that it is here to somehow squelch my freedom. When we fail to see that the foundation of God's law is his love and his work in our lives to rescue us and to redeem us, then we'll miss the beautiful display that the law actually is. Not only do we see this relationship from God, we see a second major section, which is 3 through 17, which is the regulations that God then gives. When we understand that the law comes out of this relationship, a relationship that is characterized by God's love, we can begin to see what the Bible sees and what the Bible declares to be true, which is that the law is actually beautiful and worthy of our affection. The Bible is consistent. Nowhere in the Bible do we ever find the law of God spoken of negatively. Instead, we find glowing reviews of God's law. Think about Psalm 19, for example. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, the psalmist declares, the law of the Lord is perfect revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. They are sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The law of the Lord is more beautiful and more valuable than gold, the purest gold. It is sweeter than honey right off of the honeycomb. The Bible displays the glory of God's law. 
That sounds really weird, doesn't it? A system of rules and regulations is something that is beautiful, something that is that helpful. How in the world is that? It's because we have to understand this fundamental reality about God's law. Laws tell us something about what someone values. The fact that we have laws in our land that regulate how fast we go, where and when we stop at intersections and so on and so forth, says something about the law. It's not that they just want to to take our fun away in driving. It's that we are in giant, multi-thousand-pound machines that have the ability to destroy whatever it is that is in its way. And so since the law values your life and mine, it has put regulations in place to govern the way in which we use those vehicles so that life might be protected. God's law reveals God's priorities. In revealing what God prioritizes and what God values, the law is a reflection of who God is. As we understand the law and we look in the law, the law is going to reveal to us what God deems is important. And in showing us what God deems as important, it shows us something about the character of God which is why the Bible looks at the law and says the law is beautiful. Why? Because the one who gave it is beautiful. The law is valuable. Why? Because the one who wrote it is infinitely more valuable than anything that exists in the universe. The law is helpful. Why? Because the one who wrote it is infinitely more helpful than anything that you and I can dream or imagine. The law is loving. Why? Because God is love. The law is a reflection of God's heart, of God's character. And so as we approach our study of these ten rules, regulations, and laws, what we need to understand is that in understanding them, we come to understand more about the God who gave them in the first place. This is an exercise in glorifying God. When we read the Old Testament and understand the laws, we understand it to be an exercise in understanding more about God and bringing Him glory. Because when we understand His law, we understand what He values. When we understand what He values, we understand His character. And when we value the same thing, we begin to reflect His character in the world. Do you see? What I said earlier is that the purpose of the law, I believe, is that we glorify God, we glorify the Lord of love by living out his law in love. As we live out his law, we reflect his character. As we reflect his character, we bring glory to his name in the world. Amen? But not only does the law of the Lord here reflect God's heart and God's values, the law of the Lord here, when we need to understand just as a brief Um, way as we're looking through this, this is not in fact meant to be, it is in fact meant to be exhaustive, but not in the sense that you and I might tend to think. Douglas Stewart calls the, the Ten Commandments, they fall under the rule of what he calls the paradigmatic nature of the law. Basically, that's a fancy way of saying each of these ten is not in fact meant to be the end all be all, but is instead meant to introduce us to broader categories of what God values such that as we study them, we will find out that they are actually infinitely more complex than what they might seem on the surface. These laws not only regulate what we're not supposed to do, where there is a command, don't do this, 
the implied opposite is true. Where it says to honor your father and mother, the negative is also true. Don't dishonor your father and mother. Where it says don't murder, it is also implied that you are instead to value life and fight for life. Where it says don't covet, you and I are then expected to be content in trusting in the Lord. Such that what was meant and the purpose of the law, as Stuart points out, is that Ten Commandments are more like the Constitution. And the rest of the Bible and the rest of the Old Testament law is more like the, 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 the laws and regulations that are built off of the general principles set there. Does it make sense? You following with me? Essentially, think about it this way. Jesus, when he came into the world and he was challenged on the law, he was asked a specific question. What is the most important law? Right? And what did Jesus say? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second, he said, is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says all of the law and prophets are actually fulfilled if you just keep these two. Jesus goes beyond even just the Ten Commandments, and he says, as a matter of fact, all of the Old Testament, the 613 different laws, I think, can be summarized in two broad principles. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two broad principles show up right here in these Ten Commands. The first four teach us something about loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we're to have no other gods before him. That we're not to have any idols. That we're not to use his name in vain. That we're to remember the Sabbath. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Fleshes out into those four commands. Those four commands then go on in other commands throughout the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus as we get more specific instruction in the ways that we are and aren't supposed to approach God. Second command, love your neighbor as yourself. We see that in the last six commands. Honor your father and your mother. Shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. You see how it fleshes out? They're broader principles that the expectation is, as you and I understand them, we begin to apply them into our lives in every situation. They're bigger principles. And they regulate one another. Such that, for example, honoring your father and mother does not look like obeying mom and dad to worship a God who's not God. Why? Because that rule number five is subject to rule number one that says, you shall not have any other gods before me. So mom and dad, I can't choose to honor you by obeying you to worship something that is not God. Why? Because it's regulated by a higher principle. Make sense? So God, as he is working this out, boils everything down into these two broader commands, love the Lord your God and love others. It is a law of love, founded in love and meant to be exercised in love. What we find then is that these laws, because they boil down into two or they reach out into 613 and more, as we begin to apply them to the specific situations in our lives, what we ultimately find is that they're a whole lot more complex than we initially thought. And when we boil it down to this reality that says, you know what, I've never killed anybody, so I'm good. 
I've never committed adultery. I'm good. When we understand that these are paradigmatic and what Jesus comes in and does and, and brings us a broader interpretation of them is we find that we are actually not as good as we thought we were. And when we underinterpret or oversimplify the laws, that's when we fall into legalism because then we think, if I just do this, I'm good. If I just keep these rules, I'm good. What we find out is that doing that shrinks God's holiness. And what we need is a fresh encounter with his holiness, which is exactly what these people got. And as we discover the purpose of the law to be to reflect God's nature and his character, his holiness, his majesty, his wonder, his glory, as we study these and realize that they're larger and heavier than we ever initially thought, what we come to is we experience then exactly what the Israelites experience. We experience what Paul tells us that we're going to experience. We realize the law does nothing more than expose just how broken we are and the fact that we can do nothing about it. And as we come to understand God's law and his character and his nature, we will respond in some way. Which is exactly what we see the Israelites do in the last verses that we study. When they saw the thunder, when they saw the flashes of lightning, when they heard the sound of the trumpet on the mountain and the smoking, they were afraid. And they trembled. And what did they do? They ran from God which is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And at that point, God was just merely walking through the garden. Here he is in a grand display of his glory and his holiness. And Moses tells us it is a test of the people of Israel that the fear of the Lord, the respect and the awe might be upon them so that what? They would be restrained from sin. He's given you this vision so that you won't sin. Why? Because sin is a denial of God's character. It is a rebellion against his holiness. It is something that does not merely dishonor him, but brings judgment upon us. The law properly understood and pro God properly seen will lead us to withdraw from him altogether. So the people cry out, Moses, we don't want God to talk to us anymore. Moses, you go and you talk to God. And you bring that back to us. And we'll listen and we'll obey and we'll do what, Moses, what you tell us to do, but don't let God talk to us again or we're going to die. Because the presence of God in all of its grandeur and glory does nothing more than break broken people. When we come into God's presence with sin in our hearts and in our lives, every time that we see people meet God in Scripture, we don't see them running to him and giving him a big hug and receiving a big warm kiss. Isaiah, Peter, others, when they came into the presence of God, they fell flat on their face. John, in the book of Revelation, as he meets Jesus in all of his glory, is compelled to fall flat on his face in the presence of God, afraid for himself. And the people cried out for a mediator because that was the only way that they were going to be able to relate to God. And so Moses marches up the mountain into the deep darkness that is what covers God in all of his grandeur and his glory. Even that is an act of God's grace. 
that he displays himself on this mountain, but he does so in a veiled way so that he doesn't destroy his people. And he invites this mediator to come. And Moses goes and he brings the law back and the people continue to struggle again and again and again with the law until a better Moses shows up. One who is willing to be a perfect mediator where Moses was imperfect. And so when we get into the New Testament, when we get specifically to Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews reminds us of this. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them. You see how he's directly referencing what we just read about? You've not come to this place where God speaks and you're not able to draw near. They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But we have come instead to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. We've not come to a mountain that is untouchable, a mountain that is full of fire and judgment. Instead, we have come to the hill that is Calvary, where Jesus Christ entered into a deeper darkness than Moses ever went. The darkness that clouded the universe as God himself rained down justice, rained down punishment for your sin and for my sin on the only sinless person that had ever existed. And because Jesus was willing to go there in all of his perfection and in all of his glory and in all of his goodness and bear the punishment that we deserve for our sin, God now gives us a righteousness that is his and not ours. Such that he takes the punishment we deserve and gives us the reputation and the righteousness that we don't. So that you and I are now able to exist in a relationship of love with the Lord of love and the Lord of law. And we're now empowered by his presence and his spirit in our lives. Not to forsake the law, not to throw the law out, but instead to now live the law free from the expectation or the fear that if I mess this up, I'm somehow going to lose my salvation. Instead, resting in the fact that Jesus has kept the law completely perfectly for me, he is now with God in heaven, praying for me, cheering me on, and applying his blood again and again and again and again that I might be constantly cleansed in the presence of the Lord so that even if I fail in my attempts to live out the law and express my love for God, I can be assured that I'm not forsaken. And I can live in freedom the law of love displaying God's glory. And I would never choose to break that law knowing that breaking the law requires punishment. And if breaking the law requires punishment and Jesus is the one who bears that punishment, how would I ever consider doing anything 
that would add to the burden that he bore on the cross. Because I love him. And he loves me. And I can live free, free to serve him, free to obey him, because Jesus is the better Moses who kept the law for us and freed us to live out the law of love by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You and I have a broken relationship with law, with rules. We sometimes see it, or tempted to see it as the world sees it, as God's restriction of our freedoms and our pleasure and our fun. When I was a kid, my mom and dad had rules. One of them was that we were not allowed to watch a PG-13 movie until we were 13. Holy cow. That wasn't necessarily popular with my friends when we would go to one another's house or there would be sleepovers or something and they would want to watch a movie and everybody wanted to watch whatever the latest uh, videotape was at that time. And it was PG-13. And I would say, guys, I can't watch that. And they would think and I would think, man, my parents are just so lame and they're dull. They're trying to restrict the fun. And I didn't understand what an expression of love it was at the time, but now that I am a father... And I have two little boys, and I realize that it's my responsibility out of my love for them to guide them in the way that they can go that is defined by my love for them. And so I have to make the unpopular decision that says, no, you're not going to get a cell phone at five years old. No, you're not going to have a video game console. No, you're not going to have unrestricted access to a computer. And yes, that makes me not very popular with your friends and everybody else because you don't know the same things they know, but at the same time, I know what's out there. I know what's beyond the limits that I have set for you. And my responsibility as your father is to train your heart so that when you get to the place where you are responsible, that barrier can be lifted and you will then know how to rightly interact with what's on the other side of the boundary that I have placed for you. I didn't understand that as a child. I understand that as a dad. Sometimes I don't understand the purpose of the boundaries and the barriers that God has placed in my life of the things that I shouldn't do or the things that I should do. But I have to come to understand that the foundation of God's law is his love for me. That God wants what's best for me. God knows what's best for me. God knows what's on the other side of that boundary that he has set for me. And so my responsibility is to trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. As we study these ten words, my challenge to you is where you don't understand, trust. And where you are afraid, obey. And that starts first and foremost, with what are you going to do with Jesus? Because the author of Hebrews says, 
See that you do not refuse him who's giving you this law. And it's not just a God high on a holy mountain, raging in fire and in lightning and in thunder and in trumpet sounds. It is Jesus Christ who ascended a different mountain where the glory of God came and rested upon him. And God said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Are you listening to Jesus? Are you living in a relationship with Christ? Are you relating to God's law as a law that is loving and that is concerned for your good and for his glory? If not, how do you need to leave today committed to trust and obey? I invite you, if you would, would you bow your heads and close your eyes and take a moment and go before the Lord and just simply ask that question, God, how do I need to trust? How do I need to obey today? Take a few moments and I'll close this in prayer.